pair of bookends, the book club you can carry anywhere. We are your hosts and hopefully your new bookish pals. I'm Hannah MacDonald. And I'm Lydia Clare. This is an exciting episode, our first in our brand new debut spotlight series. Each episode in this series will be highlighting a debut author and putting their books firmly on your radar. Alongside deep diving into their debut novels, we will be getting all of the insights into their debut journey. Today's episode is with Rosie Andrews and her debut novel, The Leviathan. Rosie was born in Liverpool and studied history at Cambridge before becoming an English teacher. Her debut, The Leviathan, has been perfectly described as a stunning literary historical mystery with a supernatural twist and is out in paperback now. Rosie, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Now, what we like to start with, and our bookends will know this by now, we like to ask our guests, what are you currently reading? Well, um, I just finished one and started another. The one that I have just finished is actually um, out in April. So it's a novel that, sadly for readers, they they won't be able to get immediate hold of, but was just brilliant. It was called um, The North Shore uh, by a a debut writer called Ben Tufnell. And I'd never heard of of Ben and I didn't know particularly much about his work, but it turns out that he is um, also Norfolk-based or was when he was young. And the novel is a kind of gothic um, coming-of-age tale, which links quite heavily into the the Norfolk area where the Leviathan set um, and was just fabulous. I really, really loved his writing. Um, And then just after that, I've moved on to another proof that somebody has sent me because I love reading the proofs, um, (laughs) which is called The Company. And that's a Victorian Gothic, um, which is about a a sort of wallpaper company and an arsenic scandal in the 1870s. And the writer's name eludes me for a minute. Uh, but, but I'm enjoying it. Oh, amazing. Fascinating. I mean, that's uh, surely a huge benefit of being an author is that you get sent all these proofs. <laughs> <laughs> Just incredible. People actually send me things and go, would you read this? <laughs> yes. yes, please. Free books. Yes, I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whenever we get sent anything free, we're like, yeah, and we read it immediately. immediately we'll like, take it. <laughs> no, um, say no. <laughs> but I mean, those sound great and uh, pre-orders are really important, mm-hmm. especially to debut authors. So Listeners, get pre-ordering. They sound great. Um, And we will link those in the show notes as well. So we would love to start with um, asking you what the journey to writing and publishing your debut has been like. Could you tell us more about it? So I am... I'm, I'm not unique but I might be unusual in terms of not having seen myself as a, a would-be author since uh, I was young. A lot of people say I always wanted to be a, a writer and that's not quite true of me. I had a big hiatus or a gap um, between starting, well I started university, I got a job, I left that job, I became an English teacher and at that point being an author or writing a novel um, hadn't really hadn't occurred at all to me and more and more as I was teaching I was I found myself writing little bits little segments to show my students and many of them said oh that's good that's good miss and I was like well well you know don't don't go too wild and um, a couple of them said you should be a writer and I was thinking to myself you just want to get rid of me <laughs> Um, and then um so I started doing a couple of um short stories and I had a I was very lucky to have one of them published and one of them shortlisted for a prize um and at that point I thought to myself well I have a a little girl now and I'm at a point where I was part-time teaching and I thought it's now or never if I want to have a go at writing the novel I mean it probably wasn't but I thought that (laughs) um and I had a 
a chance to begin on a writer's course up in Cambridge, which was a sort of 12 um, incremental novel writing course to try to get you started. And that was wonderful. So I wrote one novel and that wasn't the novel that eventually um, signed a book deal or, or an agent. Um, I started another novel and then that really went quite quickly. And quite shortly after that, I found my lovely agent who's brilliant and, and very encouraging. And um, shortly after that, Bloomsbury, well, said yes and that was very yeah. exciting and I think at that point that's when it becomes really surreal when you realize somebody's actually going to publish something that you've written which mm. is quite a scary thought in many ways because it stops being yours and starts being something that um anyone can rightly comment on like dislike hate with every fiber of their being if they want to um and so it becomes a, a bit terrifying and then as the publication date creeps closer and closer you know it's quite um it's an anxious time I think and many writers have described this to me and I felt it too of constantly looking at you know your email to work out did somebody really send me a contract have I made all this <laughs> Yeah. you tell friends and family I'm going to be published and then there's a long space of time and they're thinking to themselves yeah okay uh, of course you can <laughs> and then all of a sudden you know it's in the shops and people are talking to you about it and that's all a big or for me it was a very again a surreal time and then after that com it comes out and a couple of months later of course a hardback publication there was a huge amount of fuss and that was brilliant and then suddenly things are a bit quieter and you think again, did I make it all up? Mm. Um, and then you hit the publication paperback date. And at that point as well, I think most people are writing the second novel and trying to dovetail um, the writing with the publish uh, publicity and so on. So it's all in all been incredible and surreal. Wow, that sounds amazing. Um, obviously, with this being you know a debut series, like it's it's amazing to hear about your journey into getting published and you know my one of my closest friends um she's um as we were talking about before but she's the kind of writer where she's been she's been writing for her whole life you know she's always wanted to do this and um she's had plays on and that's how I know her because I've been in her plays and um she's currently trying to get her debut published and just watching like how it's a really like chaotic kind of journey you know having this book sent out to people and you know she feels like she's constantly checking her emails and constantly oh, seeing if like has anybody got back to me yet does anybody want this and and it's you know it's it's interesting to hear from you that you know it wasn't the first book that you wrote that was published mm -hmm. and and you hear that quite often don't you that it's it's not somebody's first book that that they write that's the one that gets published and you know that seems it's, it's almost a shame in a sense because it's like the amount of work as a watch with my friend the amount of work that goes into writing a book and then for mm -hmm. that not to get published like do you have any advice I guess for for writers that are you know waiting to hear back from publishers or that might not get their first one accepted I guess yes um absolutely I, I think that it's one of those things that short-term disappointing or discouraging and long-term encouraging because as a writer you're never going to reach a point as I've learned where um people saying no goes away you know that that is something that professional writers experience that people who've had 15 books out will still experience and I think that remembering that um the evolution of a writer is it goes past publication you know publication is a thing that happens hopefully um for many people but your evolution as a writer goes long beyond that so every scrap of writing that you've done everything that you've got in a bottom drawer helped to shape that 
um, it was still, you know, the learning experience that you need. And although publication is fantastic and is sort of cherry on top of having written something, you still wrote it. You still have that book. It's still an achievement. Um, and, and not forgetting, of course, that there are times and places where particular genres, particular forms of writing are more popular and less popular. You still have it. You know, there's no reason in the future why somebody might not go, hold on. You know, let's have a look at that that you wrote um, back when you were 35 and not maybe not thinking that it would be published. So I would say to take a long view is probably the most encouraging way of thinking about it. I feel like I need like that in my head all of the time. Yeah. Like, <laughs> play the long game. Play the long game. Yeah, yeah it, is, it is a long game. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so moving on to, to the book itself, The Leviathan, it's, it's, it's not to be defined by a single genre. It's both thrilling and fantastical, dramatic and historical. Did you have a genre in mind when developing and writing the book itself? I would say that exactly what you just said. I, I like, um, I love historical fiction. So if I were to say um, a historical fiction writer that I particularly admire, I love C.J. Sanson, for example, who wrote the Dissolution series, yeah. which is straight historical fiction. There's nothing particularly magical happening. Um, I love all of that. I also love fantasy writing. So if I were to suggest a fantasy writer that I, you know, I, I lean into or enjoy, Tolkien is probably the most obvious example. I don't necessarily see myself as sitting within either of those two spaces, maybe quite naturally. So I start to write, I can write historical fiction and I do enjoy it. And my first published short story was set in the 90, early 1950s. Um, and I'm thinking of my my next novel that I'm starting starting to think about might be in, a, in and around that time as well. So I like all sorts of historical fiction. I tend to lean towards something a bit odd happening, the magical, the, the slightly wild. And that's just the way my brain works. I think, you know, what strange thing could come into play here that I could that I could throw in. And you have to guard against making that so, so completely mental that <laughs> wants to touch it. <laughs> and of course, there are trends. So although, the, as I've said, the, the gothic fiction genre, I think, has been enjoying such a massive resurgence at this time. There might be a time in the future where there isn't such an appetite for it. Um, and the other thing that I particularly love, which is normal historical fiction, as it were, would come back into play for me. So, yeah, I think you're right in what you said originally that it's a bit fantastical, a bit historical. That's what I love doing. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't think you are either. We're not particularly um, huge historical fiction readers. Um, and I think for me, having that, that fantastical element and having, um, you know, elements of witchcraft and elements of, you know, um, mythology and things like that in it, that for me as a reader was something that was like, I, could, I can really get on board with this. Yeah. Like I really, I, you know, because I usually if someone says to me, "Oh, it's historical fiction." I'm like, oh, "I'm, you know, it's going to be hard to read." Or yeah. you know, I, I get, I do have a lot of those those kind of prejudices. I'm exactly the same. Yeah, and then, but then the minute, like, I, I think on the blurb it mentions it mentions, you know, this kind of like, um, she is awake. and it's like, oh my god, what is that? You know, and immediately I'm like, well, I've got to, I've got to read this. Um, and I think that, that it's such a wonderful mix of all of those different yeah. things. That's what I really loved about it. I was really pleasantly surprised by how absorbed I was by your book. Mm -hmm. Like, because I'm I'm exactly the same. I, I don't know why I've got this strange bias about historical fiction. It's not that I've ever read anything 
particularly bad it's I don't know what it is I can't describe it I just have this weird thing about like where I'm like reluctant to pick them up and then I just got completely absorbed by your book and I was like okay maybe I've been wrong about this I can get on board with this I mean one thing I would say is that historical fiction leans towards the the big dense so you know sometimes I find myself picking up a book in historical fiction and thinking maybe maybe not you know I, I know I probably will enjoy it but at the same time I can see that it's 600 pages ahead of me yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I tend to write a little lighter maybe than the traditional historical fiction author um I don't tend to run to 400 700 a thousand pages and that's just a kind of natural um the way a story works in my mind um, but there are certain novels, I mean, I love Hilary Mantel, for example, Wolf Hall, just brilliant. At the same time, you've got to put the time aside for it, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah. I still haven't read Wolf Hall, no. so. I've got it on my shelf, that's ready. <laughs> but I feel like this is a good stepping stone. It's a good stepping stone, like, yeah. <laughs> you're a bit scared, if you're a bit kind of like, oh, I don't know whether it's for me. I honestly can't recommend this book enough for you 100%. to just have a go and just see because honestly I think you'd be really pleasantly surprised I do yeah, definitely so I did mention it briefly before but I I did in the interview that you did that you started writing it was only a couple of years ago that you came back to writing was it the Leviathan that that made you want to go into writing again or like how did how did that happen like what inspired the Leviathan the, the novel mm. So no, the first part of the question, no, um, I was writing before the idea for the Leviathan yeah. came. Um, however, in terms of where those ideas came from, they're actually many of them date back to when I was studying um, at university and I was studying, uh, which is many years ago now, but the Tudor and Stuart periods, um, Thomas Hobbes and his Leviathan, which is a sort of political philosophical work. And a lot of the elements, if you like, that have gone into making the story are things that have lived with me for a very long time. So I enjoy things like anything to do with the sea. For example, I'm on board. Anything that is to do with mythological creatures. So if you give me a dragon or you give me a, you know, some sort of thing that may or may not exist, love it. So yeah. those sorts of elements have all been present for me for a great you know a long period um and when I started writing I had this sort of fear of whether I was throwing everything but the kitchen sink in here <laughs> if that makes sense and yeah. I went all down and I thought look at all these inspirations and met another of them I, I suppose was um Paradise Lost and John Milton who comes into the story uh in a, in a way maybe that a person might not expect knowing his work but in a way that I hope works and um, yeah, so there was, a, excuse me, I've got my pen, a long list of inspirations uh, that I had to kind of corral together and try to make into something coherent, which I hope it succeeds in doing. But yeah, I was fearful for a while that it was just too, too much, you know, too much of a melting pot. Um, but then that's the kind of fiction that I like. It definitely, uh, to me, it didn't feel like like that at all it felt it felt very much like it had I don't know like it was ticking all the boxes that I love mm. in a in a in a book you know and and it felt very cohesive and it felt like each each part was was valuable to the story it wasn't just there for any reason it wasn't there to be fantastical or just we'll chuck a monster in or we'll chuck a bit of witchcraft in it felt very much like like um suitable for the world and mm. you know it felt like it was natural for it to be there I think a lot of that comes down to the um the 17th century's politics its belief landscape 
it's sort of the way that people conceptualized the world and the way that they imagined things to be I say imagined believed things to be true to do with um witches to do with as you say monsters and it's so different to the way that many people think now I think one of the, the nicest things for me about writing in that period is to place myself or try to place myself in their mindset and think well what's possible now because of course magic and um, monsters and mythology those things loom so large for them that you can I hope you can feel as you read the novel that they really thought that they might be possible and true um which is just a, a great space for me to write in because you can basically do do anything yeah. make it as weird as you like <laughs> <laughs> I love that um and talking about like the um like the themes of the book morality plays such a key mm. role throughout the, the narrative particularly the juxtaposition of good versus evil and you know god versus, versus the devil um was morality something you wanted to to focus on with the book mm. Absolutely. Um, so the, the period of history that the, the book is set in, the earlier period, the 1643 period, the religious clash, the clash between people who were very radically Protestant or Puritan and people who were perhaps more moderate or lean towards even a, a crypto-Catholicism that was still present in the country, um, they were very everybody who I have come across in my research were, were very preoccupied with this idea of morality, of goodness, um, of what would secure your position in heaven, what would secure your position in God's sight as a good person. Um, so these were central questions for them. And I think, you know, that part of any book, for me, any good book is conflict and the idea that an internal conflict for a character might rage about what's the best thing to do. That's one of the things that makes a, a good story, isn't it? So I think that um, that was a really good confluence of things where I could bring together what they felt and thought with the thing that we would hope would go into any good story about um, choices that people have to make. Yeah, and I think it's very clear, isn't it, the influence that that the time period has on those decisions that they're making in mm -hmm. terms of, especially with Esther and initially her virtue, and she, she's seen as very kind of um, to be protected mm -hmm. um, because she's such a good person, you know, and as as the story progresses without giving too much away, a lot of that changes, a lot of people's opinions of her change. And I think it's so interesting to see, particularly with her character, how that, that, that issue of morality changes. Yeah. Mm. Definitely. And I think um, one of the things that, that's pertinent there is the idea of female agency. So mm. we were, when we when we read a novel now, whether it's set in the 17th century or whether it's, there were no novels, but a text that was written at that time or earlier, a play or, or something like that, we look at the characters very differently and we think about paternalism and we think about feminism and we think about isn't it a bit odd that a woman or a girl of 16 or 17 a might be thinking about marriage some people do but it's, it's unusual um but also might not have the level of personal agency that a woman now would expect to have and I think um that evolution of Esther's character is important isn't it because she both moves from she moves into a position of power away from a position of power which which one is it but certainly moves away from what you expect of her when you meet her at the beginning of the story mm -hmm. so I wanted to present a character initially very much um under the conventions of her time and then see you know where where that took me whether people like it or not is um 
yeah that's the question well, I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> um I'm gonna do your head and I'm gonna skip ahead because uh yeah. some, something you just said about like female agency and about you know I, I just need to ask this question so um, I'm always interested um in looking at historical works you know whether it be tv film books anything like that to see how women are portrayed and you know how those things reflect the treatment of women throughout history and it's just something that I'm really interested in and you know at the start of the novel Esther is described at one point as hysterical I don't know why but I just wrote down that she was described (laughs) as hysterical and I I knew that would I I had to write that down at the time and I'm glad I did but uh, and I can't say any more because I don't want to spoil anything Um, and towards the uh, the midsection onwards um, there is a character that is uh, treated almost like a dangerous wild animal that is a woman. And um, there's also, you know, the fear of of people being perceived as witches. Um, you know, there's all those kinds of things that I'm really interested in. Um, so with these, obviously the book is very well researched and you can see that when you mm. read it. But was this something that you came across a lot in your research, you know, about yeah, I'm really interested to hear about, you know, what you came across. I think it's omnipresent, isn't it, in um, in literature, in historical writing, in uh, whether it's political writing of that time or not. The idea that there is such a thing as an archetype of good woman and an archetype of bad woman, that um, a woman needs is someone who needs to be managed. A woman is somebody who needs to be controlled in a particular way in order to meet a set of external standards that are imposed upon him. And the, the interesting thing for me was that my main character, Thomas, is a man. And he's trying to be a good man, but at the same time, he's not somebody who can very easily step outside those strictures, and nor would it be realistic if he did. You know, if I had presented a sort of modern man, I don't think that would work with this story at all. So he had to be somebody who, I mean, some people have described him as patriarchal. Yes, he is. Some people have described him as a bit of a misogynist. Yes, he is. That's exactly what he's like. He looks upon his younger sister as somebody who needs to be cared for, protected, not necessarily somebody who needs to make her own decisions. Um, He looks upon her as good. He looks upon Chris and Moore as bad. These are viewpoints and assumptions that were so central to their existence as a society that I couldn't take them out, and, and nor would particularly I want to. Yeah. Um, so in the research, I think in everything I've, I've read, everything I've looked at at that time, particularly the religious research into what was expected of a Puritan woman, a woman living in a Puritan society, she was expected to be the Esther that we see at the start of the story. Mm-hmm. So meek, obedient, subservient, and certainly not uh, an, a character with a power or agency of her own. I find that fascinating. And mm-hmm. particularly, I... I, I loved the way that uh, religion and faith, we've touched upon this, but are, were very key components of the novel and the narrative, and particularly Thomas's character. Um, we see many of the characters kind of struggle, embrace or denounce their own faith throughout the, throughout the narrative. What role did, did faith play for you when writing it? Mm. Um, do you mean for me as a writer? Uh, for you as a writer and for the characters. Mm. I think that there's a a sort of dualism um, in play there, which is to try to present their thoughts rather than mine. So from a historical perspective, everybody in that time period, virtually everybody, was religious. So the idea that we have very commonly now of an atheist, what's an atheist? So 
what what I was presenting at that time was a man whose belief that God might not exist would be considered so blasphemous that it would put him completely outside the confines of acceptable society. It might even be illegal. It might be something that led to um, consequences that were actually legal for him. So he would be punished for not believing it. And then the, the other aspect of that is as a modern writer, as a person who lives in a society where atheism is far more common, and not only common, but not questioned, not um, something that you would lead a person to to be punished for, because that would be ridiculous. You know? <laughs> it's also the, the novel is sort of commenting on my own liberalism, my sense that people should be able to believe whatever they want. Yeah. Um, and that's partly from a, I suppose that's, that's a modern perspective that's quite common, but at the same time, there are many people living in the world who still aren't allowed to believe whatever they like when it comes to religion. So, um, yeah, they're, they're the sort of the two components that I was thinking about, the historical and then my own, if you like, my author's perspective. Um, I'm not sure how heavily that comes through. I find that so interesting because I, I forget that it wasn't a thing back then to to be an atheist mm. and to, to kind of choose what, whether you wanted a religion at all like mm. I just don't I just don't even think about things like, like well, you don't do you yeah um <laughs> so yeah that's just yeah madness to me but <laughs> it was very interesting the way that they spoke to each other yeah in terms of like if they were even edging towards something that might be possibly blasphemous yeah. or possibly mm. hinting at maybe not quite believing something and it was all very shut down very quickly like <laughs> But what do you think God would think? Like, careful now. <laughs> and it felt very like he was, but particularly with Thomas, he was always sort of on the edge of things, sort of kind of like being very careful about what he was saying, how he was forming his words, because I think, yeah, because he did initially has that kind of almost lack of faith within himself mm. and very conscious of those around him, isn't he, about, what, about how he's coming across with that. They were living, I think, in a, in a heavily prescriptive place where you you were not allowed to question normal orthodoxies um you were not allowed to say not only do I not believe in God for example but you would not be allowed to say you didn't think that God was uh, Jesus was the son of God you would not be allowed to say you didn't believe in hell you would not be allowed to say you didn't believe in in virtually any part of the orthodox puritan um faith its belief system so I think you're, you're absolutely right he has to watch every word and weigh it very carefully yeah. So we've obviously touched on on Thomas and Esther, but one thing that I am very interested about you is um that you are the third of twelve children. Mm, that's right. That's right. Wow. Which is incredible. <laughs> what did you want to communicate about about family in your novel, but specifically the dynamics between siblings? Absolutely. So as a, a person who grew up in a large family with lots of small siblings um that sense of responsibility for them that sense of knowing that there are you know dangers that you might have to help them and protect them against and so on particularly when you're quite young yourself and like Thomas not quite ready to step into a more um paternal role or maternal it would be in my case um but then the, the sense of the unconditional love that he offers to his sister in the end wherever that leads them I think is a really important part of what I was trying to convey and quite interestingly my, my second novel that I'm working on also brought out that sense of um always bringing out that sense of sibling relationships 
what's very tricky for me, obviously, is having lived in such a big family, I find it much harder to conceptualise what it would be like to live in a tiny family. So he has one sister. He is solely responsible for her. Um, and then obviously having lost their parents as well, that's very different. But um, yeah, I think that sibling relationships have been important to a couple of things that I've written. And I can't imagine that that's too separate from my experiences growing up. No, definitely not. And I, I I love reading about relationships between siblings. I mean, I'm one of four girls, so it's like, I, I think, it's, yeah. <laughs> Don't just say anything else. Yeah, that's it. Um, but the, the sibling relationship I find is so like powerful and it does almost feel like at times that you're, I especially feel it because I'm, I'm the oldest of four, like mm. I'm almost uh, a third parent I guess mm. um and I always kind of took on that role and I and I definitely see that in in your novel between those two characters you know you mm. get a sense of the fact that you know one of them is trying to parent the other whether the other one wants it or not indeed <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah my well my age gap with uh, with my brother is 17 years he's 17 years older than me so it's very. I felt very much. I'm very much the Esther of the yeah. of the relationship, <laughs> and I was very much like, yeah, like on Esther's side, like yeah, he's annoying. <laughs> he is annoying. <laughs> I agree. Like doing those annoying brotherly things. So I was like, yeah, I feel you. I feel you. <laughs> I mean, um, after people have read this book, I don't think you want to be broadcasting the fact that you are the. No, the no, maybe no, maybe not. <laughs> I'm, I'm very I'm fiesta at the beginning let's just say that so moving on <laughs> so death and and particularly grief everyone all the bookends listening know that I love grief honestly I want that on a t-shirt I love grief. I love literary grief they feature prominently throughout the book uh, we see losses occur particularly to Thomas um of close family and um, those around him the frequency of this may be indicative to the time period we know that a lot of it wasn't uncommon to see death around mm. but what I wanted to know really was how intentional was the inclusion of of death and and grief around Thomas the familiarity with with bible stories and the importance of that the centrality of that to the narrative I think it is important and one of the stories that was uh, important to me when I was formulating um, the, the Leviathan was the story of Job so Job was a, a man in the Bible who was tested by God and he was tested with um, his faith could God I think it was a bet with the devil could uh, he maintain his faith in the face of a series of losses and tragedies that occur to him or oh, sorry happened to him so um one of the things that happens to thomas is or um, several of the things that happen to him are difficult are traumatic and of course you would expect to see that in in many novels of this type but that sense of testing him in the face of loss was something that was important when i was writing it um and is also important in the bible too the appearance of the Leviathan, which is also something that happens in um, in the story of Job. So there was that sort of um, elusive element to it. And then I think just generally when you have a main character who's a little bit cocky, a little bit maybe he's just too sure of himself at the beginning, isn't he? He's a little bit <clears> overconfident. <throat> Again, testing him and seeing what you can do to um, to change him is a, a useful experiment for a writer. You know, what can I do to this character? What will that do to them? Um, I think so. It's something that I, I enjoy doing horrible things to my character. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Uh, and it won't come as any surprise to anybody that my favourite Bible story is the story of Job. 
Why does that not surprise me? He just loses everything. He loses everything. <laughs> and he comes out on top. You're just drawn to the darkness, I am you? drawn, drawn to, to it. It's 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 he has a really bad day. He has a really horrible <laughs> time. Like, literally, he's like... It, you think it can't get any worse? It can. It does. And it does. <laughs> Poor Joe. <laughs> so you've, you've touched on it a couple of times, um, but both the, the title and the story involve a Leviathan, which I, I know very little about a Leviathan other than that it's a mythological sea creature and it's giant. And that's kind of all I know about it. Um, and I did have to Google what a Leviathan was. <laughs> when I read this book because I'd never heard of it before um so I am interested uh, in you know what was the significance of this creature um within your novel <clears throat> so the the concept of um and I, I'm obviously going to be giving a little more away in order to answer this question than maybe I normally do but that's fine the concept of the the sea monster the sort of world encircling serpent is ubiquitous across different faiths and different cultures it's something that you would see if you looked at the ancient Egyptians it's something that you will see if you look at the Mesopotamians um, it's something you see in Christian eschatological or sort of end of the world thought and it's, it's fascinating to me as to why that is. It's this idea as, as well that you see in Norse mythology of something that grows and grows from the beginning to the end of time. And its significance in the story, and I think also in those mythologies, is of contained chaos. So it's the idea that um, there are forces in the universe, both good and bad, both chaotic and orderly, that can only ever be temporarily restrained and so there's always that potential, if you like, for them to spill over and become more powerful. And there's also the, almost an inevitability that they will. And I found that um, very interesting, both to see how that myth tracks um, through different cultures and, and different ideas, but also to then write about it. Um, and I also mentioned at the beginning the uh, Thomas Hobbes Leviathan, the political work, which is allegorical. Again, it's this um, idea that he raises up the state as a the state the political state as a kind of um metaphorical leviathan that's what he calls it he calls it this great monster that has almost unlimited power but at the same time we need it in order to maintain the order that he thinks is central to um not living in a state essentially of horrible chaos where we all murder everyone mm -hmm. so i thought that was also quite <coughs> compelling in terms of um Thomas's own decision making and in the end the way that he has to make a decision that he doesn't want to make but that has to be made for the benefit of everybody else so that was the sort of connecting tissue behind the idea of the leviathan in the story hopefully I haven't given too much away <laughs> no, no I, I think, think you did really well you skirted around that very well <laughs> I would have done that <laughs> no that's so that's so interesting because yeah like I said I knew very little about it and it just it kind of pieces stuff together that maybe I missed I think if I mm. went back and reread it I'd probably yeah I'd, I'd, I'd maybe look at things a little bit differently like I also like a book that can be read on different levels I like a book that can be read just as a plain old adventure story or something that you can if you want go and pick through and look at the things that link to other things and maybe enjoy it a second time with a bit more appreciation of them but mm. um you know the, the sorts of stories that I enjoy can obviously can usually be read on a more obvious level as well yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely and I would say it 
it does really work as an adventure story as mm. this kind of like it, it has like I said at the beginning it's got all these elements to it it's just yeah. absolutely fa- fabulous I love I really love the journey that you go on with it mm. and it's constantly surprising that's what I like yeah I, I think if you'd have you'd have asked me before I read it what do you think it's going to be like I'd have been way off <laughs> yeah yeah there was there was um some twists in there shall we say There's, yeah yeah <laughs> more than a few let me tell you and you won't be able to predict them I've got a quote yes it's not really do you funny. mind her reading your own book back to you <laughs> I, I feel like everybody hates this perspective, but I can't not read a quote like if I've turned the corner if it's important I just wanted to give the readers it's very early on in the book it gives nothing away don't worry guys but um I wanted to give everyone a bit of a taste about how well you do at building tension I think that in terms of like the thrilling aspect of the book the the way that you use tension is just absolutely fantastic so um I'm just going to read a little bit it's so good so basically give you a bit of context Thomas is on his way home after a long time away there was something wrong with the picture in front of me I surveyed the fields on the southwest side of our farm other parts of father's land were tenanted but these fields contain the animals we raised ourselves I scanned the landscape taking in the russet palette of the near frozen ground set with the long shadow of trees barely touched by a sun that had risen sulkily in the two hours since I had left Scotto and which would rise no further today. I held Ben's bridle as I looked through a gap in the hedge out across the open field. My eyes saw the problem before my mind caught up. It was late December. Father liked to put the ram to the ewes early. These ought to have been a mating dance in play, running, bleating, mounting, a ritual at once crude and sacred as old as time. I half expected to see Father cresting the low hill between the farmhouse and the road with his drooling mastiff and a hey-ho for his son. Nothing moved. An uncertain breeze stirred my cloak, and from somewhere nearby, an owl emitted a soft hoot. It was late for the bird to be abroad. What was that I could see? The light was thin and reedy. I strained my eyes to make out something lying on the ground, several hundred yards off, something lumpen and white, and beside it, another. And, as my eyes refocused, another on and on like a congregation of fallen angels. I watched, held between fascination and horror as from a tree behind me, the owl swooped on its pale prey, holding down the unmoving flesh with its strong talons, tearing at the woolly hide with its cruel curved beak. I am become a brother of jackals, companion of owls. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, then that is so early on in, in the book. And it, you just get this fantastic sense of foreboding. It's that first line. There was something wrong with the picture in front of me. Yeah. You're like, well, what, what's yeah. wrong with the what, picture? What are you telling me? No. You have the lightest of touches with it. It's so, it's, you know, it doesn't feel forced. It doesn't feel too much. It just feels like his natural reaction to what's around him. Mm. But there is this horrible, and it, it, it kind of, continues throughout the mm. novel of something really bad is going to happen <laughs> <laughs> and you don't know what it is and every time something bad happens you think yeah but there's going to be something worse there feels like there's going to be something else 
you don't feel that sense of relief yeah and I just wanted to know a bit more really about your process of of building tension and maintaining Mm. tension throughout the narrative it's a challenge isn't it because um that there are elements to writing within gothic fiction with intense fiction of all sorts psychological fiction and so on suspense that you almost have to um, work out before you start because you, you need to work out what you're aiming to do to the reader before you can do it. What is it that makes somebody feel that sense of foreboding? What is it that makes somebody feel um, that something really bad is coming and that's going to keep coming uh, without showing it to them? Because that's the whole point, isn't it? You have to keep something from them in order to create that fear. When I read... Um, I am very rarely afraid when I read stories, even though I love them. So I like gritty, I like horror, I like uh, frightening, I like ghostly, but I'm very rarely frightened. One story that did scare me um, was, I think it's M.R. James, and it's um, Oh Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad. Have you have you read it? Yeah. Oh, it's terrifying. Isn't it? Terrifying. So it's I horrible. That. <laughs> and I was like, why is this so horrible? Mm-hmm. And the answer for me is, I think, uncertainty. The, the thing that creates fear is the imagination process that's going on as the, the slow reveal of facts assails the reader, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So you, you don't want to give them too much. You want to make sure that there's something coming. You want to hint at it. It needs to be nebulous. It needs to be something that they can start to shape in their mind. And in their mind, it should be more terrifying than it is in suggestion if that makes sense yeah. so it's always in outline that you successfully terrify somebody I think um so I love anything like that anything gothic I have enjoyed um Edgar Allan Poe for the same reason so books that are maybe more 19th century where the gothic is a little bit more um common but then taking that back into the, the 17th where there aren't as many novels flying around Absolutely. well you did a very good job of scaring me after that <laughs> yeah the the tension was there I uh was gripped yeah like I was like I need to know what's like what's gonna happen yeah I felt really on edge and, and reading it together was hard because we were both like we got to but yeah yeah oh my gosh so I I would love to to carry on talking about the Leviathan but um I would be concerned about giving too much away and I I don't I want I want readers to enjoy it for themselves um so there is a link in the show notes um to order yourself the book if you haven't read it already please go and buy it because it's brilliant Rosie what's next for you are are we going to see more yes um so there is uh, at the end of the paperback although you probably won't be able to see it because I'm talking well talking on a podcast but there is a reference (laughs) to a second book coming (gasps) Um, which is a, a gothic story set in the 19th century so linking to, to what we were talking about uh called the puzzle wood so i'm hoping to see that in 2024 amazing well we will be automatic buyers of that yes and we, we unfortunately we do expect you to come back on <laughs> <laughs> please do absolutely um, so as this is a series to highlight debut authors, are there any debut authors you'd like to put on the radar of our listeners? Any other debut authors? I've read quite a few recently. Um, of the, There's a, a novel that I really, really love by a lady called Annie Kirby, which is called The Hollow Sea, which is I thought was brilliant for um, 
comes out last year, but is a debut. Brilliant for people who like mythology, who like, um, it's a more modern story, it's not a historical uh, novel, but mythology and suspense and mystery. That was absolutely amazing. Um, I've also recently finished a book that's coming, or two books actually, that are coming this year. One is um, Wayward by Amelia Ward. Oh, yeah, I've just got the proof for that. (laughs) Fantastic, this beautiful um, fluorescent pink cover, but then inside so much in the way of um, witchcraft, female power. It's just brilliant. And then something that's perhaps more along the lines of um, a turn of the screw or a vanity fair, elusive to both of those, um, is a book that's coming this year called Fine Shade, which is a gothic mystery um, by a lady called Kate Griffin, who I believe writes under a different name for, for young adult audiences, which I can't remember, but that was fantastic as well. Awesome, fantastic oh, recommendations. Yeah. Perfect recommendations. And you... I feel like Wayward's just gone up your TV. Yeah, I was just thought it was funny. Like, I, I've got Wayward. And we were like, oh, that sounds good. But now that you've told me it's about that, I'm like, okay. No. <laughs> I'm going to be reading that pretty soon. Amazing. <laughs> so I think all we've got left to say really is, have you got, you like, do you like to do this? We do like to ask people before uh, we let them go. Have you got any cultural recommendations for us? Any, it can be any music you've listened to, plays you've seen, TV you've watched over Christmas. <laughs> TV. Um, I've been watching more TV than I'm supposed to, but I've been Fab. recently, this is something that everybody's started watching again, isn't it? I've been watching Happy Valley recently. Oh, yes. Yeah. Which I, it's one of those things that I start thinking, oh, I'm not going to enjoy this that much. And then all of a sudden I'm just in and yeah. completely hooked. So I've started that. Um, the other thing that I really enjoyed over Christmas was a BBC World Service um, radio programme of Susan Cooper's The Dark is Rising, oh. which uh, is a, a series of five books that were written for children, um, which centre on the idea of a massive conflict between the dark and the light and a young boy who becomes um, central to that conflict. And that is a 12-parter, which is all available, I think, on, on BBC World Service Radio. Just brilliant. Same. Yeah. It's an exciting recommendation. Oh, that's it. I've yeah. got a list of one in my arm now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have given us a good few recommendations for our podcast, so thank you. <laughs> is there any way that our listeners um can find you not in person that would be strange um can they find you on social media and maybe follow you to see what you're up to yes um I am present on social media I have a twitter account um under it's under Rosie Andrews and I think it's at Rosie Andrews 22 um and that's my only social media so yeah. well thank you so much Rosie this has been this has been brilliant um and we've, we've loved chatting to you and we loved reading your book and listeners and I hope that if you haven't already read it like I said before go get it ordered mm-hmm. uh, go give Rosie a follow um so you can see all the exciting work that is yet to come from her if you enjoyed the podcast please do rate review and subscribe as it helps to boost us in the charts you can also give us a follow um at a prayerfulkins pod on Instagram and at prayerfulkins on Twitter and TikTok um and I think that's all we've got time for yeah but thank you so much again Rosie um and yeah I can't wait to see what else you write thank you it was my pleasure thank you so much